0: Welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. You're listening to a show that is all about ideas, about the search for wisdom and knowledge through conversation. My guests all have something to say and have the credentials to say it persuasively. Here, the conversation continues. Thank you for joining me for the latest episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today my guest is Dr. Nathan Orlando, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Benedictine College and author of the recently published Raymond Aron and His Dialogues in an Age of Ideolo- I'm sorry. Raymond Aron and His Dialogues in an Age of Ideologies, available now through Peter Lang Publishers and on Amazon. Nathan is an old college friend. He taught me how to debate and I've enjoyed keeping up with his work over the years. He's a graduate of Hillsdale College and Baylor University. Nathan, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon.
1: Thank you very much, Josh. To those of your listeners who you taught to debate yourself, uh, please don't blame anything on me for Dr. Herring's teaching. I get it, of course. Uh, very
0: nice to see you, Dr. Herring. you uh, uh, for having me on. It's, it's, it's still, I'm still not used to the title. You're, you're very kind, Dr. Orlando. We, we could just keep going on doctoring each other uh, the, the whole episode, or we could just drop it. Uh, so yeah, if there's anything... If there's anything that my students maybe got from me that I got from you, it's a sloppy flow.
1: <laughs> Just that one you can blame on me,
0: yep, yep, and a deep love, a much deeper love of uh, of parley where I don't need to research than uh, deeply carded, excessively researched cases. Um, but anyway, we digress. Um, before we get into uh, all of our conversation today, uh, I think last time. I know we've talked over the phone, but last time we podcasted together, you were somewhere in Pennsylvania. So tell us a little bit about how you've moved to Benedictine and where that is and what you're doing there. So last
1: time we were together, at least virtually, um, I was working as a postdoctoral fellow at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. That's college that was founded by a man named Boniface Wimmer from uh, Germany. He was the first uh, Bavarian uh, Benedictine monk in the United States. And from that arch abbey there, several monks went out to found other colleges, among which are uh, what's called, now called Benedictine College. It was called the College of St. Benedict back in the day. The territorial governor of Kansas asked for some monks to come out here and uh, teach students about things so they founded the abbey and the college here uh then later on came the sisters who founded the college of saint scholastica and the two eventually merged into Benedictine college and that's where i am today in okay. Ashton, kansas
0: okay so you're in kansas and you're teaching what are you teaching this semester
1: What am I not teaching this semester? Uh, This semester, I have two uh, sections of Intro to American Government, which is my essentially founding course. The same kind of thing that you had with Constitution 101. Uh, We do Federalist Papers, Anti-Federalist Papers, little John Locke, Puritans. Uh, We end history with Abraham Lincoln. Um, And I'm also teaching, in addition, Film and Politics. We're right now in our Westerns unit, so a lot of John Wayne going on and how the West became civilized. And I'm also teaching a seminar for the seniors in which I'm showing off some of those debate skills as well, uh, getting them to have it out on some of the great texts that we've been studying for the past four years and try to come up with the truth of various questions that plague political life.
0: Oh, man, that sounds like a really fun class. And Being able to watch John Wayne movies for class also sounds great. I mean, and I'm I'm sure you're using that to spark phenomenal conversations, but it also sounds like a great homework assignment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Ah, well, I'm really curious if you could tell us just a little bit about your doctoral research. I I know we're we're here today to talk about Aristotle, but I wonder if you could take us to uh, the mid-20th century and this uh, Raymond. You're going to have to correct my pronunciation. I think it's Raymond Aron. Is that right?
1: Raymond Aron. So you basically drop the D and Aron like
0: Achu. Oh, okay. Aron like Achu, Perfect. So who was he and what did he dialogue about?
1: So I like to introduce him as the most interesting man in the 20th century that nobody's ever heard of. Mm. If I can do the elevator pitch. So Aron grows up in early 1900s, uh, France, uh, in Versailles. He comes from an upper middle class family and he goes to one of the top uh, schools in France, uh, which is called the Ecole Normale Supérieure in philosophy. And France is such a, an administratively centralized country that basically all roads lead to Paris. So he's studying in Paris with all of the more famous people that you have heard of. Uh, he's colleagues and roommates with Jean Paul Sartre, uh, Maurice Merleponty, ponty of course, they meet uh, Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, the Ecole Normale Supérieure has everybody going through. So at any rate, he graduates top in his class, and this generally paves the way for one to get a teaching job for a few years in the provinces. He's studying philosophy, a uh, teaching job in the provinces, and then come back to Paris, sort of uh, you're writing your own ticket. He instead decides that he wants to go study German philosophy, because oh. believe it or not, at the time, German philosophy and French philosophy don't really talk to each other. Nobody really wants to have that conversation. So he goes and he teaches in Cologne for a year and Berlin for two years. And it's worth noting that this is between 1930 and 1933. So he gets to Germany just before the Nazis win the second highest number of uh, parliamentarians in the Reichstag. And by the time he leaves, Adolf Hitler has been appointed chancellor, so he's going to the beer halls and listening. You know, here to uh, well, from you to the bookshelf behind you. You know, there's Hitler uh, giving a speech on how the Jews are evil. It's worth noting as well that he's a Jew, uh, but he has oh, blonde okay. hair and blue eyes, so he's relatively safe. But anyway, he ends up coming back for Christmas break, and his family has some political connections, and so he sits down with the deputy foreign minister to explain, this is in the winter of 1932-33, to explain that, hey, there's these Nazi guys, and they're sort of a problem. Mind you that the militarization of the Rhineland is 36, the Munich Agreement is 38, there's still plenty of time to stop Hitler. Aron is one of the earliest guys to Mm. figure out that this is a problem, and he's just a grad student at the time. So at any rate, he gives this lecture to the deputy foreign minister about how we have a problem with the, our next door neighbor and the deputy foreign minister listens patiently and stops him at the end and says, well, that's uh, very interesting. I agree with you that that's a problem. (laughs) Now, what do we do about it? (laughs) And this is the point that Aron says, uh, shoot, he's a philosophy student And this is the moment that haunts him for the rest of his days. He has a brilliant career going on to 1983, but for the rest of his days, he's haunted by this moment that diagnosing a problem is only half of the the actual solution. You actually have to come up with something. And this was his moment of conversion between philosophy and politics, because even in the absence of perfect solutions, the problem remains, human action remains. And so for this reason, he goes on to investigate in very particular terms, the real issues of the day. And in many ways, his books, his articles, he was a newspaper writer, he was, uh, he he wrote books, he wrote uh, academic journal articles, and he was a teacher. And all of his writings, all of his teachings point towards specific problems. He doesn't write sort of a magnum opus that has, this is my philosophical method, these are my political beliefs, but instead confronts real problems in real terms and tries to find not the the ultimate, the best solution, but the best available, or as he'll put it, the least bad solution. He says that's what politics is all about.
0: So wait, so politics is all about the least bad solution. We, we might have a variety of problems. And for a singular problem, there's going to always be at least a least bad way to change the status quo. Yes. Okay.
1: Which yeah. ultimately inaction is still action. So even failing okay. to choose, as happened in the 1930s with France, okay, there's this Hitler guy, we don't have a solution to him. So we're just going to set this aside and pretend nothing's happening that's still a choice. And okay. that might be the least bad solution. He gives this great argument for why, well, maybe France really wasn't ready to fight the Germans leading up until you know 1939 when war actually breaks out. But that's still a choice. And human decision, the ability to choose the least bad option is sort of the essence of politics.
0: That is really interesting. And it, it dovetails so well with uh, our main topic today, Aristotle, because at least yeah. on a a very big superficial level in, in my mind at least the distinction one of the distinctions between Plato and Aristotle is that Plato is all about the ideal and he's all about the just city and at least on one reading of the Republic and, mm-hmm. and the just man and the just life and the harmonious soul he's not really asking about a particular person's soul he's asking mm-hmm. about the ideal in that sense and he's mm-hmm. thinking about the ideal Republic not a particular state Whereas Aristotle is just filled with these specific, particular examples, Mm -hmm. and he's much more interested in a specific focused analysis uh, than he is kind of a broad universal principle. Is that is that fair or am I character, character creating caricatures?
1: Well, that's a deep question that involves people a lot smarter than me studying over the past couple of thousand years and trying to come up with a solution. The short response is, yes, there is a lot of reason to believe that Plato, through his Socrates in the Republic, doesn't actually mean that this is the thing that he actually wants, uh, particularly when you get to the laws and the seventh letter, but that's not what you're asking about, so we'll put that aside. Aristotle still takes him seriously in the Republic and in his other dialogues. Aristotle studied with Plato for a mere 20 years or so. So, you know, when my students think that they have it bad, that they have me for four years, just imagine. <laughs> but he does give us a lot of reason to believe that he takes Plato seriously enough to take him to task. As he says in, I believe it's the ethics, the truth and friends are dear. He's referring specifically to Plato there. The truth and friends are dear, but the truth is dearer still. Mm-hmm. And it's part of friendship to sort of correct one's friends.
0: Well, let's uh, I think that's a that, that's a great line. But let's 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 take this over to Aristotle and, mm-hmm. and politics uh, in, in general. Um, Nathan, if you had to summarize Aristotle's influence on political theory, how would you do that? I know that, too, is a massive question. <laughs> what is Aristotle's impact on political theory?
1: How long does this podcast go? Uh,
0: we need to be done by three. <laughs> Okay.
1: We'll see what we can do then. Uh, That is a very big question. And I think you were right before in asking about the analysis of specifics. Because Aristotle, like Arone, or rather Arone like Aristotle, approaches things on their own merits. And he less gives us a step-by-step guide to how to, uh, how to build the perfect city than he does give us a way of Thinking through our questions towards that end. To your question, perhaps I can break it down a few different points. We'll deal particularly with the politics today. I think that was uh, at the heart of your question, but it's worth bringing in the ethics, the Nicomachean Ethics, which is perhaps his more well noted work. And he ends the ethics in the very last chapter, on the very last page, by talking about specifically that we haven't figured it all out yet. So he writes this great book on how to be a good man, how to embrace the virtues and live a virtuous life, which is itself not a step-by-step guideline, but he ends the work by saying, well, our search isn't complete. And so by, uh, by the third book of the politics, he'll be asking about the difference between the good man and the good citizen, saying that the virtues are not the same. Because he opens up the politics by talking about man as a political animal. And I think this is this is his main contribution, that he opens the politics by saying that all things aim at some good, and the political community is the thing that aims at the most comprehensive good that politics itself is sort of an architectonic study, as he will say, everything sort of fits into it. And there's something about politics that completes us. He's going to call man a rational animal and say that politics, the the man without a city engaged in this politics is either a beast or a god, by which he means, you know, you can't be a god, so you're probably a beast. He says there's something deficient about the man without politics. So in this regard, he gives us a different way of approaching the question. Politics is not incidental to who we are. It's not something that we just sort of have to deal with, but is in part of our essence, is part of who we are. And we remember this uh, for personal examples. We remember this with the COVID outbreak, that there was something during lockdown that was sort of lacking, being able to engage with other human beings. It was not fun the incidents of mental health issues and uh, drug abuse and so on and so forth went through the roof. You know this, you were working with, uh, you were working at the Thales High School at the time. Your students, I'm sure, were not the same before and after, college students as well. And that's true of all human beings because they're human. It's part of what we are. So back to the question of his contribution, he's in part correcting Plato to your point from earlier that he argues that There is something in the search for the best regime, for the perfect way of doing everything that is not really human. It's built for computers rather than human beings. Politics is not a problem to be solved. Okay, and if there's no perfect solutions, it's not a problem to be solved once and for all, but rather a way of life. How do we do that? He starts searching not necessarily for the best regime, as it were, but for the most bidding regime, which he says is going to be different for each political community. Some people are going to have a way of life that lends itself more towards a kingship, some towards democracy, some towards oligarchy. And in this regard, he sort of gives us a way to approach this question of how ought we to live. And back to your earlier point, not to uh, just to tie everything up, that he argues in book two that one's basic premises ought to accord with what one would pray for, hmm. but nothing should be impossible. In other words, we should aim at the best, of the best, but we should sort of temper our expectations that we're ultimately going for not the perfect, but the best that we can get. And in this regard he gives us different questions to ask different ways of approaching the uh, political community that will allow us to start to get at this question
0: i think that's really helpful in part I'm, I'm stuck on some one phrase you said the most fitting regime for each community yeah. so it's not that there is some global perfect political regime if we could just get everyone to practice a singular constitutional republic form of government or a singular empire that suddenly we would have global peace and prosperity and everything would be great, but rather there's sort of a there's a there's a diversity and a localism both in the image that you're describing that there's these different groups of people in different times and places and with different circumstances and they are going to have a unique regime that fits their fits their good and their end. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think that's well put. We tend to have the idea, this is a particularly American fault, but other cultures are just as guilty, that everyone is an imperfect version of us. Like, if only they had the U.S. Constitution and McDonald's, life would be grand. But it's <laughs> not always the case. Various cultures have tried the American Constitution. So Argentina once tried it almost word for word. But other cultures have tried, you know, this, that, and the other thing. This was famously the plot line of the Iraq operation in 2003, that they were simply waiting for the American Constitution and then peace and democracy would break out. But that's not always the case. Uh, Tocqueville is very good on the point that, you know, there are certain mores and certain habits that prepare one to live in certain ways. And without those, without the education, without the cultural assumptions, assumptions, without the religion, like it just won't work out the same way.
0: Uh, yeah, I think that's helpful. Uh, well, let let's shift a little bit forward in time. Uh, uh, your field, I mean, once upon a time, you were the philosophy guy. I would ask big questions to, but you you went into uh, studying not just politics. Of course, Hillsdale renamed their political science department the politics mm-hmm. department, whatever that means. Uh, you 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 went something even a little bit more precise than that, and uh, you you've been studying international relations. So. Uh, what is international relations, and how is it taught?
1: Well, this is something that I never really saw myself doing, and it's particularly ironic that I'm here in the middle of the country studying international relations. <laughs> so this was uh, not exactly a planned destination, but the questions naturally led me one to the other towards what a political community is and what a political community, among other political communities communities is. And it certainly didn't have the same experience of, you know, going to Germany with uh, Raymond Aron and, you know, hearing beer hall pushes and all of that. But I think he's onto something that the questions of philosophy are extremely, extremely important. uh, And I will never belittle them to my students or to anybody else. But nonetheless, there's still always something to be done. And all the more so in the international realm that nobody really Understands, and those who tell you that they do are lying to you. <laughs> so, international relations is in essence how nations and states interact with each other, whether that be diplomatically, economically, militarily, so on and so forth. In this regard, well, the next question is, of course, what's a nation, what's a state, you know, how do they interact with each other? And who is it that's doing the interacting? If I get on a plane to what's your favorite country, Botswana, and I hop off the plane like, hi, I'm Dr. Orlando, I'm here. Uh, So international relations, we would probably agree that that's not actually international relations, you know, maybe as a professor that changes the thing a little bit, but not really, in essence. However, if Joe Biden does the same thing, we would call this international. So the question on the table is, what has changed between myself and him? I'm going to try to bring in both Aron and Aristotle, if you'll uh, work with me for a second. Do it. it. Aristotle says that we ought to expect no more of a definition than the subject matter itself allows, no more precision of a definition than the subject matter itself allows. And so in that regard, Aron tries to define international relations. And he tries out a few different definitions in his work, Peace and War. And he eventually comes up with the fact that, you know, there's always going to be exceptions to whatever it might be. And so towards that end, he says that, well, you can't get a precise, this is international relations and this is not. But what you can do is try to focus in on some of the the places that will call our attention. And so he says international relations in its essence can be found in the actors of which he names two. He says there's the diplomat and the soldier. When they're acting, it's probably international relations, at least when they're acting in an official capacity. This is in the same way that if Joe Biden goes to Botswana and he's just on vacation, well, that's not necessarily international relations, but if he's going there in his capacity as president, then it is. But he's also going to say that the second thing to look for is that international relations always takes place in what he'll call the shadow of war by which he means that all states at the end of the day reserve the right to prosecute their own cause to exert their own will by shooting when we enter into civil society, that doesn't happen, or at least it ought not happen. We call that a revolution. But in international relations, no matter how peaceful it looks from the outside, that's always in reserve, even for a country like Switzerland that might not have, a, you know, no military, but they still have that, that, that's still part of what it means to be in one state among others. Was that your question? Did I miss something there?
0: No, I think that that's. I mean, like I, I now have a, a sense of what international relations is and what it is that if I were one of your students taking an international relations class, like, okay, I think I know what I would be studying from that. Mm-hmm. So, like I'd be looking at the interactions of nations and states through their different actors. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like that line about uh international relations always takes place in the shadow of war a living picture of that just in uh, the ukraine russian interaction in in recent years um i'm pretty sure that's been going on for more than a year at this point and
1: well it depends when you date it to you can at least go back to the shooting in 2014 but yes the official yeah. action
0: official at least i mean like but but there's so much there there is there's simultaneously this element of movement of troops and uh, uh getting missions and all that but then there's also I am mean, thinking of some of the uh, political theater that Zelensky has staged, can we go mm. to the United States? And uh, some of the counter-political theater that Putin has staged, that both have had, the, and that too constitutes some level of uh, formal state action because both are acting uh, as, their, as the respective head of state. And yet there are also troops going to war against each other. So that's just, I found that all very, very interesting. Is that, does that, is that is what I just said, was that correct or no? there's
1: definitely an element of theater involved there's definitely troop movements involved now putin is going to argue to some degree that this is not in fact international relations and we don't know how seriously he makes this argument that well it's you know about uniting the russian speaking people and we're all part of the same nation so therefore this is just an internal action the same way that Uh, Abraham Lincoln is going to argue that the civil war is not in fact a war. It's a, it's a police action because Mm -hmm. the South never left. Now, depending on how seriously you take him, well, I I don't take that all that seriously, (laughs) but yes, all of these things play in whether it's, I think Zelensky is going to be in the United States this week to ask for more money. Uh, That's definitely part of international relations, the movement of troops, both into the Russian, inside the Russian border uh, and even you know, defending his own is part of international relations. If politics, as Aristotle says, is the architectonic study, then international relations, everything plays even more into that because nothing is off the table. Uh, the example I use for my students with COVID that suddenly, in not only politics, but international relations, things like medicine and engineering come into play in addition to economics and infrastructure and military actions and diplomacy and so forth.
0: Sure. I'm thinking of the, uh, I think it's Taiwan and the, uh, the manufacturer of microchips was here for a while. I mean, it's like, yeah, that was a, that was a big, big deal. Um, Well, let's see if we can marry these two themes kind of more precisely. Uh, So if that's what international relations is, uh, and you've already started moving in this direction with bringing Aron back in. Uh, What insights does Aristotle offer to contemporary international relations?
1: Well, uh, that's a difficult question because he is writing explicitly on domestic politics. Oh, okay. And towards that end, I'll answer your question. I just want to put a couple cautions on the table. Number one, that there are people who spend their lives and careers studying this and I'm not one of them. Uh, so I'm a dabbler, but as I dabble, I would also caution you that, you know, there, if you go to enough political science and philosophy conventions, which I don't recommend, of course, uh, you'll find, you know, Plato had this theory of, you know, Facebook and Aristotle has teachings on solar panels if you tease the text enough, yeah, you can probably find something that kind of matches that, but that's a matter of, you know, putting, getting out to it, getting out of it, what you want to see. Mm. So I'm just going to qualify what I'm about to say that I think you can obtain a lot of wisdom and how to approach the international realm from Aristotle, but uh, I'm going to only going to push it so far. And I'll focus on the politics for our purposes today. Sure. I
0: think in, in terms of like uh, in biblical studies language, this would be the difference between eisegesis and putting something on top of a text versus yeah. eisegesis where you draw something out of a text. And and there there's a time and a place for a good allegorical sermon that does have a true uh, true principle, but it's always a bit of a stretch if you can't actually see it in the text. I, I appreciate the cautions that you're putting on top, but I really still want to I want to know what what connections you do see between those two.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, So he tells us that the city comes into being for the sake of living, but continues for the sake of living well. And he opens the politics with this. Book one, especially chapter one, is very dense. And so if we understand the city as starting off for the sake of necessity, that includes goods and services, but it also includes defense. We have to be mindful that Aristotle is growing up in the shadow of the Peloponnesian War, took place maybe a generation before that, and that overturned the entire Greek world, Athens versus Sparta, who was going to win. Socrates was a foot soldier in this war, and Athens was devastated not only with the loss of a whole generation, but also that it had been defeated. And of course, the other caution that I have to have is that it is very easy to read some of Aristotle's students into this whole equation that, of course, his most famous student being Alexander the Great, and that is a very particular approach to international relations. Uh, Thomas Aquinas also would consider himself a student of, as he said, the philosopher, and his principles of just war do in some part derive from Aristotle, but not exclusively so. But as far as our purposes with Aristotle, when he discusses the city coming into being for the sake of living and man as a political animal, he's saying that we come out of what Hobbes would call the state of nature for the sake of, uh, you know, the basics. And the basics, as you come together into a political community, keep expanding. If you read the Republic that you have, you know, the very small city of utmost necessity, and then it keeps on going up from there, that, once you have a functional city and you have these basic covers, uh, basics covered, then there's also an element of living well, and what exactly this means, is he'll tell us in the ethics. But he will also tell us in the politics that it's about, well, as so he'll say, equality between equals. And what do you do between equals? Well, there's a there's an element of ruling and being ruled in turn, and this is what he defines, uh, this is how he call, uh, what he calls political rule. Now, equals between individuals, as you had mentioned earlier with uh, Plato not giving individuals their due is one thing, but equals in terms of political communities is also a different thing. He tells mm. us in book seven that all cities have sort of this urge towards domination of each other. And this is in part because they're looking for security by eliminating their rivals, but also in part because they want to show how virtuous they are, how just and great they are. They want to be honored by taking over other cities and either enslaving the people or just conquering and saying, hey, we're the best. Of course, this is the plot line of the Peloponnesian War. Aristotle argues that it's possible to conquer unjustly, to hold unjustly, that war should aim at certain ends, but that these are not the highest of all ends. So in that way, he gives us a way to approach war and understanding of war. Mm-hmm. And he, this is going to come back to the first page of the politics when he argues that there, Plato made a mistake when he said that there's only one type of ruling, He says, master, slave, the philosopher king basically gets his way all the time. Aristotle will tell us that there are three different types of ruling. There's that between master and slave. There's that between parent and child. And there's that between husband and wife. Mm -hmm. Now he says, master and slave, we'll we'll set that aside for right now. But that's what conquest is all about. Like, I want you to do the thing and you're going to do it or I'm going to kill you. But he holds as his model, building up from the most basic of units, the family structure, he holds as his model the rule between husband and wife, which sounds a little misogynistic, but the more you dig into it, the more, and especially as he goes through the book, he talks about the relationship between equals, between husband and wife, ruling and being ruled in turn on specific subjects towards this end, the first instance of international relations that comes up in the politics is between the Greeks and the barbarians. And he suggests that the barbarians, the Greeks are fit to rule the barbarians for one reason, because the barbarians, barbarian just simply means they don't speak Greek, so it's everybody else. Barbarians treat their slaves and their women the exact same way. And for this reason, they are fit to be ruled by the Greeks. So there's an element of conquering somebody else and ruling them for their own good going on in there. And I think most of us would be on board that you know women are not slaves. I hope that's not a controversial statement. Uh, <laughs> but this brings in the question of, you know, what exactly are we doing in the relationship between nations and states? And he suggests that, well, it's not just about exerting one's will, not just about getting one's way, not just about plundering, but there might be an element of virtue about that. The equals are fit to rule and be ruled in turn, but maybe there's an inequality going on there. Montesquieu brings up various examples of this later on in the uh, in the tradition that, you know, the Brits sometimes went to places and conquered them and they gave them democracy and they gave them roads and parliament and all of that stuff. Uh, and sometimes of course they didn't, don't get me wrong. but there might uh when he talks about kingly rule and even when he talks about master slave rule he talks about the benefits that can be rendered for the uh, those who are ruled what the ruler can do for the ruled now a lot of the rest of the book we've focused on chapter uh, book one especially but a lot of the rest of the book is about unpacking the different types of rule uh and he'll talk a little bit more explicitly about hegemony later on but Especially in book five, he'll tell us that war is not necessarily good for itself. Hmm. But at the same time, we must prepare for war in order to avoid being enslaved. And that is one of the highest goods to avoid having to follow somebody else's rule, but to participate in politics. And this is part of what we are. So he'll talk a little bit about how you uh, form a city towards this end, the types of troops involved. Uh, He'll talk especially about supporting the middle class to prepare for war. And well, he'll also tell us that, uh, this is one of my favorite observations in book five, he'll tell us that a little bit of threat is sometimes a good thing from a neighboring country that sort of binds the city together. Because at the end of the day, we can't avoid international relations whether we want to or not. And this in my studies has been one of the more, more fascinating observations that when you get to Thomas More's Utopia, for example, Thomas More will say will tell us about you know this great civilization and it looks like Plato's Republic, but the key mm-hmm. to Utopia is it's an island. It doesn't have neighbors.
0: Oh, and okay. The way that
1: you're able to build this perfect regime is by not interacting with the outside. But Aristotle, of course, is the first one to make the observation. You know, Utopias rely on a lack of neighbors but you can't really get rid of your neighbors, just like, you know, living at your house. Uh, you might not live next to the people that you wanna live next to, they might be annoying, they might cross into your yard, but, you know, you still gotta learn how to deal with them. And this is part of what politics means.
0: Well, that's that's really the other piece I wanted to ask you about with that. I mean, uh, uh, I think my students, particularly on the high school level, less so on the college level, I've already had great conversations with students about the meaning of politics on the, the collegiate level. Um, but at the high school level uh, people conflate politics political and partisanship as if they are all synonymous mm. that's not really the way you've been using the term politics um you define that you told us that aristotle's goal is for the uh, uh, the city comes into being for the sake of living and it continues so that people can live well mm-hmm. um talk to us for a moment about what exactly what does aristotle mean by politics and how is that different than maybe our our current partisanship that that so consumes america every four to eight years with two-year groups in between so maybe every other year we just get obsessed with partisanship but how mm-hmm. is that different than, than the political life well
1: one could be forgiven for conflating all politics with this sort of drama and war of all against all in which there's no prize for second place and honestly, it is part of what politics means. And going back to you know, Socrates' political opponents who had him drink the hemlock. Uh, intense partisanship is part of the game. You'll recall that you know in America we had that little civil war thing where we shot at each other because we disagreed. And you know the American,
0: civil war thing. Oh. You know, it
1: was a little episode. We got over it. <laughs> Many of us got over it. But that's a different story. But politics is something more comprehensive. And part of the reason we lose track of it is because we expect too much out of it. Hmm. And I should be careful when I say that, you know, this is how I uh, make my living. So I'm not going to say that politics is unimportant, but we expect it to solve the riddle of, you know, our own identities and our destiny in the cosmos. But it can't do that. Politics is about ruling and being ruled in turn among equal. It's about deliberating together over the things held in common. He uh, Aristotle distinguishes this from tyranny on the one hand, because that's not deliberation. That's not reason. It's just, you know, you're going to go, you're going to take a left-hand turn at the next stoplight. Uh, well, I don't want to. Okay, well, I'm going to shoot you in the head. That's tyranny. But politics involves, well, the whole of man's person. It involves reason and recent speech. <clears throat> He opens the politics by talking about man as a political animal and says that, you know, this completes us, that -hmm. the man on his own in the state of nature is a beast. Again, I'll have your listeners uh, remember their experiences during COVID, that there is something important about being recognized by other human beings, not just recognized, but also recognized as an equal, as Mm -hmm. one worthy of participating in the common deliberation. But the thing that I think we get wrong today is that we're uh, after this quest for purity. The other side is the spawn of Satan, and if I agree with them that I am giving way and this is a sin that I need to confess, I need to win. I need them to conform to my way of being in all times and in all ways. They must recognize me in my entirety, and they must not disagree. And this is the whole uh, uh, identity politics craze today. Because Aristotle on one hand says it's necessary, but on the other hand talks about deliberation and recognition as the goal, not complete conformity, but the very act of being involved in politics as the goal, as part of who we are, he both points us to our its importance, but also tempers our expectations. Mm. If it is about deliberation, we might still disagree. I know that there's a number of things that you and I disagree about, and we can, you know, take it out in the parking lot later on. <laughs> and we have, no. um,
0: but we'll just reenact the Reformation like we do every time we talk theology. I, mean,
1: I didn't want to drop the R word, but uh, since you go there, um, we all make mistakes. Some of them just persist. Uh, some of us just persist in our, our mistakes for 500 years. So you know, uh, going strong,
0: man, going strong. Anyway, <laughs> but at any
1: rate. Aristotle offers us an antidote to the ideologies of our day Mm. because the ideologue doesn't look for the humanity in the other person. He looks for the conformity of the other person. He looks for the unconditional surrender of the other person. But if we accept that we're never going to get all of what we want in politics, we're already on the path towards, well, treating other people as human beings worthy of dignity and so in that regard it's it's been misunderstood but we ought not throw it out this politics thing
0: i see that i I think that's that's interesting to focus on the the ideologue there as uh really looking for a total victory and being unwilling to settle for a realistic win uh in pursuit of this like total good i'm reminded of a uh line where I think this is either Richard Weaver or Russell Kirk I don't remember which of them wrote this but he wrote about uh I think this is Kirk wrote about the ideology being a fragment of the whole that is taken mm-hmm. that is mistaken for the whole itself and that the ideologue thinks he has the totality of truth when in reality that totality of truth is an error because that mm-hmm. fragment of truth makes great sense when it is seen as part of the whole but extracted from the whole and grown to a swollen size, it's, it's mm-hmm. cancerous. And that that enters into our political discourse in, in dangerous ways.
1: Yeah. Just as we said earlier about you know the dangers of interpreting the great texts and you know reading too much into them. You know, the Marxist will never not see class structure wherever he looks. He'll see it on your bookshelf. Is it actually there in your bookshelf? Well, probably <laughs> not but this these are the glasses through which we view the world
0: yeah those horizontal boards man those are the proletariats holding up all the books i mean mean, (laughs) it
1: was probably made in a sweatshop in cambodia that was organized by some western imperialists so you know you can't escape it
0: well um nathan as we kind of start wrapping this up uh i would love to get your thoughts on uh as a uh, without getting too deeply into the very partisan stuff we've been deriding, mm-hmm. uh, I would love your thoughts as a uh, as a political scientist uh, on the Biden administration. And uh, mm. how what what are your views on uh, how has the Biden administration done in advancing American interest on the international scene? Uh, has has have American interests been advanced? Have they been have they retreated? Uh, how How has that gone over the last couple of years from your perspective?
1: Well, I'll try to distinguish my professional diagnosis from my personal diagnosis. When I teach American foreign policy, I tend to focus on presidential administrations. And I try to encourage my students to think of each presidential administration as in some way a response to the prior. And most of these take the form that they campaign against their predecessor but usually end up doing something pretty similar to their predecessor. And in that regard, the America first craze of Donald Trump has sort of given way to the Biden way of approaching things, that both of them are looking to sort of take their foot off the gas pedal, that American, what one would ungenerously call imperialism, reached its apogee during the Bush administration with Iraq and Afghanistan and the engagement with Russia or lack thereof and so on and so forth. And uh, Obama's, in some ways, uh, carried that forward, he campaigned, you know, I'm going to close get no, and I'm going to get us out of Ra- Iraq and Afghanistan. And then he didn't, because that's sort of how it worked. Trump approaches the Obama administration by saying, you know, we actually are going to do those things. And of course he doesn't either, but he uh, signs this agreement with Afghanistan that we're going to pull out. But the idea on the table for most of the, this short 21st century so far has been that we had the, what what we call in the, the lingo, the unipolar moment, following the collapse of the Soviet Union. There was bipolarity coming out of World War II, two great Mm -hmm. powers. And then in 91, suddenly the Soviet Union collapses on Christmas day. And so the United States reigns alone. And okay, well, we're gonna be the police of the world and we're gonna make sure all the good things happen in uh, the Balkans and in Africa and so on and so forth. And, you know, mixed results there. Of course, this goes into the Bush administration. Sorry, this is a lot more history than you wanted, but uh, and the war on terror sort of takes the American police action uh, to its fullest extent. The Trump administration, the Biden administration have been about backing off of this, mm. focusing on international cooperation. Uh, of course, Trump was giving NATO a hard time that comes to, into fruition at the end of his administration going into the Biden administration. So, too, with Biden's approach to places like China, with the coalition he built regarding Ukraine, and across the world on various subjects, and his, his hobby horse is, of course, uh, climate change. That he's building this international coalition so in this regard the priorities see i was actually coming to a point here in this regard his priorities regarding international relations have been about coalition building what happens the day after the collapse of american hegemony in this regard perhaps he's been somewhat successful that he has been building bridges trump is famously not much of a people person. Uh, He's been building coalitions coalitions towards what happens tomorrow. And by his own measures, one would say, well, Ukraine hasn't been lost to Russia, so in that regard, we're successful. Well, we got out of Afghanistan, so therefore we're successful. Now, the withdrawal from Afghanistan was, nobody looks upon that with pride.
0: That was bad.
1: That was bad. (laughs) There's no other way to say that.
0: And just for any uh, interested listeners who want to, I do have a previous episode. I think this is the first episode of season three uh, with Kevin Roberts, president of the Heritage Foundation. He came on the show to talk about the uh, what he called the debacle of President Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan. So we've got that back as a previous episode in season three. If any listeners want to go back down memory lane and uh, history from a couple of years ago now when uh, the United States kind of announced that they were withdrawing from afghanistan tomorrow and then they left and left behind i don't know how many millions of dollars worth of helicopters and missiles and uh, god alone knows how many women who were counting on a western presence to ensure their rights to health care and uh, education that were suddenly gone with the imposition of sharia law under the taliban so there's yeah. my uh, there's my quick soapbox moment back to back to the level-headed analysis dr orlandale
1: well, you're exactly right that it mirrors our pull out from Vietnam and mm-hmm. that there are a bunch of people who worked with us who stuck their necks out in the assurance that you know, we would have their back. And then when it all comes collapsing down and we are not there to help out any of the people who helped us out, you know, local police officers, city councilmen, informants, soldiers, people who were standing up for the rule of law. And then we said, good luck and got back out of there nobody going to work with us in the middle east anytime in this generation yeah. why would they hmm. but that was of course not so great ukraine well that's a different podcast if i start going into my yeah. thoughts in ukraine
0: we, we need a different one and i, I i'd want to preface it with just totally separating the the political reality from the economic reality of just like mm-hmm. how much of american money has been poured down the drain with Ukraine meanwhile while inflation is just crippling the average American worker I mean it's I just there there may be a whole political rationale that I don't quite comprehend but I am still stuck on the economics of like grocery bills have never been higher gas is sky high and last number I saw was something like 81 billion dollars given to Ukraine and you just said Zelensky's coming out asking for more I'm mm-hmm. like we we don't have it. We we don't have it to give.
1: Oh, but we do have printing presses, though. So
0: oh, there <laughs> go. that's the answer. That is definitely the answer. But, well, the finish, best finish defense of yeah, go ahead. Oh no, I was to say finish that thought up. We gotta we gotta start wrapping this up. But finish, yeah. I, I interrupted you as you were about to take us down the the Ukraine rabbit hole.
1: Well, the best defense that can be given of President Biden in his foreign policy is that he's building for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. that he's building coalitions to outlast that will outlast his administration, you know, even if he has another four years, and making friends. Now, that implies that there's a focus on the future, perhaps even at the expense of the present, and I think that is mm-hmm. the case. But if I had to defend that, that's how I would
0: do it. Sure. That, that does seem like a reasonable way to defend uh, President Biden uh though i i won't ask you if you uh for your, your personal view but I, I appreciate your professional view you can imagine <laughs> I, I can but I, I honestly in all seriousness i, I appreciate your analysis because you you read that in such a different way like you're you're bringing a a really a real expertise to that that your analysis of of the present yeah, um true. well nathan uh no no need to make a a uh, too big of a prognostication here but uh where, where do you see American interest going in the next five years? Uh, is, is, is America still, uh, I remember a movie that came out when we were both in high school, a bad claymation movie called Team America World Police. Is that our future? Or are we just better off trying to police the world? Or is there, is there something else that would really be in American interest? What, where, where do you see that going?
1: Well, there's the safe answer and the true answer. The safe answer is, well, we have to look out for our own interests and economics and converting into green technology and developing our own infrastructure and playing well with others, which all these are good things. Don't get me wrong. But to your point about the uh, puppet movie, that (laughs) there has always been a dominant global power. Because international relations takes place in the shadow of war, you can't rule out that there's going to be bad guys, just the same way that you know you lock your doors at night and you have 911 on speed dial. Well, I don't know why you'd have 911 on speed dial, but work with me here. Um, you have 911 on speed dial because sometimes people are nasty and sinful. I teach at a Catholic college. Uh, We've had conversations about the Reformation before. Uh, The concept of sin, I think, is still relevant to politics, no matter what uh, denomination or religion you have. That people are not good all the time. And regimes maybe even might see themselves as the good guy, even when they're not. And that might even be truthful sometimes, that Putin doesn't wake up in the morning and look himself in the mirror and say, wow, I'm a bad dude. Or he might, but perhaps that's giving him too much credit. At any rate, there's always been a dominant power and the question of the unipolar moment at the collapse of the Soviet Union, like, okay, well, what do we do? How do we handle this situation when nobody can really compete with the United States? After World War II, going into World War II, uh, Great Britain, of course, patrolled the seas. They had interests on every continent and they are out of money and they're out of people they literally can't keep it up. Uh, so too with France and Germany and all of that. So they uh, default to the United States' direction. Okay, well, you are going to keep alive the freedom of the seas. You are going to build you know, the United Nations and the Universal Declaration of Rights. You are going to solve conflicts. Mm. And of course, we've had a mixed record in that regard. Now, we living in a democracy, democracies are bad at Empire—they're bad at throwing their weight around because democracies are like ADD children. Like, oh, there's a shiny. Let me go over and investigate that. We don't stick to long-term projects. Monarchies, aristocracies—they stick to long-term projects. When you know Great Britain goes into Africa or into India, you know they're there for generations at a time. Mm -hmm. We lose interest, and that's probably a good thing at the end of the day. I exaggerate this point not to belabor it, not to test your audience's patience or suggest that imperialism is the way of the future. Don't get me wrong. But as we are withdrawing, China is rising Mm -hmm. and they are more than happy to fill this vacuum. Power abhors a vacuum. And so it fills it. Between the Belt and Road Initiative, between their investigations into the interior of Africa and throughout Southeast Asia, South China Sea, of course, they are expanding. And the the quad that's uh, being formed against them in the South China Sea and various other powers are starting to take note. Now, I do not mean to suggest for a moment that, well, to answer your question, over the next five years, we need to go to war with China. But we should be looking at, well, if we're not going to take the reins, which that's a reasonable thing, we should be looking for our own interests, they're going to. So how do we make sure that a country that still employs concentration camps, that Mm -hmm. still practices eugenics and forceful sterilization, experimentation, Mm -hmm. a country that imprisons political uh, dissidents, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: how do we make sure that they are not the dominant power in the world, that they don't have sole control. And I think it's simply a matter of waiting them out. Uh, In my field, we often say demographics are destiny. And Ah. that's not entirely it. I go back to Aristotle, politics is in essence about choice, but you look at the UN projections, China's at a, a billion and a half people right now almost by the end of the century, there'll be about half that. Mm. The One child policy will take a toll for the next several generations, even though they've already repealed it. So back to your question, long way around it, what should be our priority for the next few years? Well, it should be a looking at how to build a coalition to keep China contained, to sort of wait them out and wait out their uh, rapid growth rate, wait out their I hesitate to say population, but at least wait out this current generation of leadership. So that would be the long short answer.
0: Yeah, no, I, I I love it. I mean, I think it it just it reminds me of something I realized. I think my second or third year as a teacher, uh, there was a there was a fad in teaching. There, there, to some extent that's still there uh, that you should have the uh, student centered classroom and you should defer to the students when possible. Mm-hmm. And I realized at one point that if I were to do that that it, it really is for the better. It is the best interest of the students that I am the one who's in charge of setting mm-hmm. the expectations as the teacher, because I know how they need to behave and I can enforce that right behavior, which is really for the protection of all the other students. And if that's the role that America has been playing, if we're gonna step out of that role, I, I think you're absolutely right to look at like, how do we make sure that we don't hand that over to a potential global tyrant? I mean, that's a that's a great question.
1: If own is right that, international relations and politics more broadly is about the choice of the least bad option, it doesn't pat ourselves too much on the backs to say that, you know, we might not be, you know, we might be the least bad option.
0: But yeah, I don't, that, that, that's not a particularly hubristic claim to, to recognize that. Uh, well, Nathan, thank you so much for joining me today. It's always fun to catch up and I, I love learning from you and then seeing how much you've learned about this over the years. Uh, how can people oh gosh, It's find always a. Great your... Oh good. How can people find and follow your work online?
1: So I got to keep working on that. but for the here and now, uh, you can go to the Benedictine College webpage and uh, check out my profile on that or LinkedIn, I suppose would work as well. I've got a few articles in process and whatnot. but that would probably be the easiest way.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you, Dr. Orlando. Always a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Josh, thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure and uh, hope to talk to you again soon.
0: Indeed. And thank you listeners for joining us today for another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been Dr. Nathan Orlando, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Benedictine College and author of the recently published Raymond Aron and his Dialogues in an Age of Ideologies. If you like this episode, please do leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends. If you want to let me know what you thought about the episode, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Your host is Josh Herring. Madison K is our audio engineer. Until next time, seek the good. Pursue the true and love the beautiful.